Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning and welcome to our first event today, marking five years of the Department for International Trade. My name is Maddie Timot-Jack and I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government. It was exactly five years ago today that Theresa May appointed a new Secretary of State for International Trade, marking the decision to set up a new department to lead on the UK's independent trade policy once outside of the EU. The aim of these events today is to look back at what has been achieved in the last five years and where more work may need to be done. I'm afraid because we are still holding our virtually you will need to source your own birthday cake. All jokes aside, our first event today will look at the department itself, the process of setting up DIT, building the right capability in government and delivering on the government's trading ambitions. I want to keep my introduction short because I'm delighted that we have the current interim permanent secretary of the department, John Alty, with us on the panel, who will make some opening remarks before we get into the broader discussion. Before taking on the permanent secretary role in January this year, he was director general of trade policy in the department. So there from the very beginning. And he was before that, he was chief executive of the UK's intellectual Property Office from 2010 to 2016. Joining John on our panel is Dr. Laurent Bartel, Reader in International Law at the University of Cambridge and Councillor Freshfields, Brookhouse, Derringer LLP. Joining him is trade expert Sam Lowe, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for European Reform. And last but by no means least, my colleague Jill Rutter, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government and one of the authors of an IFG paper published in 2017 called Taking Back Control of Trade Policy, which looked at what the government needed to do to make a success of its new freedoms outside the EU. Before I hand over to John, a bit of housekeeping. This event is on the record and a video and sound recording will be available within the next 24 hours on our website. My colleague will be live tweeting the event from at IFG events, but please do tweet along using the hashtag IFG trade. We also want to hear from you. Please send in your questions throughout the event using the Q&A function on your screen. If someone else has asked a question you want answered, then do upvote it so that I know it's popular and I will try and get through as many of them as possible. So all of that to one side, John, I will hand over to you for, for your opening remarks. Thank you very much, Maddie. Um, it's great to be here uh, on this panel on the fifth birthday uh, of the department. Um, as you say, I've been there since the beginning, so uh, it's been a really interesting journey for me. Um, I think it has been a big undertaking for government. Um, I'll talk mostly about trade policy, but uh, we should remember that the department is also responsible for uh, export promotion, investment promotion, and I'll, I'll touch on that as well. But um, starting on the trade policy and negotiations side, um, yeah, for those of us turning up on day one, uh, the challenge was to scale up quickly. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Um, but why did we need to scale up and what were we trying to face? I think the first thing, and, you know, it, it, it Time moves on, but think back to then, we had to be ready for the most demanding Brexit scenario, um, which was a no-deal Brexit uh, at a time that we weren't quite clear about then, uh, but the first date turned out to be potentially February 2019. Um, and so a lot of our effort was geared towards uh, being ready for that date. Um, uh, again, people may forget nowadays, but there was quite a lot of uncertainty about what that trading policy might be because it crucially depended on the relationship with the EU. Um, and so a lot of the early years were spent, uh, from our point of view, trying to uh, understand, influence and engage with uh, that, that potential relationship. 
Um, we also had to think about, and I know you're covering this later, uh, what was our engagement with stakeholders? Uh, what were the parliamentary arrangements that would apply to trade? Um, uh, what, how would we communicate? All these sorts of things that were new for a new function of government. Briefly, um, sort of how did we go about scaling up? Um, so the first thing we did was find uh, the probably the handful of people at a senior level in, the, in government who knew something about trade policy uh, and get them together. Uh, and that was quite exciting. Uh, I'll maybe come back to that later. Um, we brought in external expertise. Obviously, we have Crawford Faulkner, uh, but we probably had about 20 people um, who had worked for other governments on trade policy. And then we had to recruit and train uh, a, a large number of people. So um, if you include export licensing, we had about 180 people uh, in 2016. Um, we had about 1,000 people plus lawyers and analysts uh, in March uh, before the TRA was set up. So a big scaling up and a big recruitment and training a huge investment in learning and development, which, again, we can come back to. Finally, how did we organise ourselves? Uh, well, we did go around the world uh, when it was possible to travel in those days, um, looking at how other government, governments did it. But to be honest, it was sort of permanent revolution. And every six months, we had to change our organisation because our tasks and our numbers were changing. So a lot of change. In terms of results, um, this audience uh, probably is relatively familiar with them, but I think I should I should mention them. So rollover uh, of pretty well all the UK's uh, preferential agreements on more or less the same terms uh, by the 1st of January, taking up our seats at the WTO, our uh, schedules, all that stuff, uh, setting out a tariff for the UK, which was really the first thing that was not continuity. So that was an uh, interesting cross-government uh, challenge. Setting up other functions like trade remedies, which the EU had previously done for the UK. And of course, now starting to set out our stall um, with an independent trade policy. And what does that mean? Whether that's on the bilateral FTAs or in multilateral fora, uh, the G7 trade track, which is the first time that we've had a trade track for the G7, market access and so forth. And then finally, um, on um, the rest of the department, uh, a third of our staff are overseas. Uh, we organise them under trade commissioners to try and give that leadership uh, to the network. Um, stronger focus on market access, um, although not that wasn't totally new, but but increased resource there, a more systematic approach to stakeholder engagement, and then more recently uh, we've also strengthened our investment uh, capability through the Office for Investment, and we are working on export strategy. So, in sum, um, you know it is a it's still a new department. Um, I think uh, we are key to UK prosperity and we are also pretty important in the government's vision of how the UK engages around the globe. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. No, that was um, really useful, I think, for us to sort of look back at actually the journey the department has gone on. I mean, one of the things I was just struck by when you were talking was this sort of the fact that you had to navigate these sort of changing objectives for the department, particularly as the negotiations with the EU unfolded and sort of different decisions were made about the UK's relationship 
there and how that would then impact on um, on the sort of trade policy um, or the sort of act, action of the department. I just wonder, from a sort of leadership perspective, how did you navigate that in terms of sort of keeping the department motivated and actually trying to support um, sort of the officials to actually be able to respond to those changing objectives? So I, I think, um, I mean, everyone likes to think they've uh, been, you know, in challenging uh, positions, but I think there was, a, we, we had to work on loads of scenarios at the same time. So that is always a challenge, especially if you don't have loads of resource uh, to do that. Um, and yeah, there were twists and turns. There were, from our point of view, um, highs and lows. Um, and so you just have to... Um, uh manage teams through that um i think that we were always pretty consistent in our view of what was needed to have an independent trade policy and we would advocate that within government um and uh you know i'll leave others to comment on um uh, how the rest of government uh, operated in that space but um ultimately uh that's what we have. And I, 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 I might just say to uh, Sam, because I know he and I had a debate at one point about whether you could have an independent trade policy that only dealt with services. Uh, maybe we'll get back to uh, that discussion. Uh, but it was our view that you really couldn't ever do that. Um, anyway, we are where we are now. Thanks. Okay, great. Um, maybe maybe I'll come to Sam in a minute on, on that. Um, I was just going to sort of first go actually to you, Jill. Um, you know, as, as I said, you, you were an author of a report that we published in 2017, which sort of, I think, set out some of the key challenges that um, that the government would need to grapple with if it was going to sort of have a successful independent trade policy. Um, John's obviously set out how he thinks DIT managed that. Um, from your perspective, do you think the department has sort of met the challenge that we that we raised? I think actually, you know, this was the big new area where the government needed to create capability uh, post-Brexit. There were lots of other areas where the government had to take on functions where it had been doing some of it and had to, you know, pull in perhaps resource from some of its arms length bodies. We saw that a lot in my old department of DEFRA. But this was the sort of big new thing that the government had to do. So, uh, so I think actually the DIT has stepped up to the plate there. I'm going to make one or two comments, some of which will probably quite embarrass John. I think there's a big issue for the civil service. When we did taking back control of trade, one of the big messages that came from other successful uh, countries who ran independent trade policies, Australians, New Zealand, as John said, uh, DIT went on a bit of a sort of recruitment hunt to see who it could pull in from those trade, um, trade departments. But one of the big messages there was that the absolutely critical thing was to have people who built up experience over years. Now, you can buy in a bit of experience at the start, but we know that one of the real problems of the UK civil service is churn. And I'm really, really interested as to whether John thinks that DIT has cracked building a long-lasting trade specialism in government. One of the first events we had at the IFG on the UK's new independent trade policy was with the then acting permanent secretary, Martin Donnelly, who'd been moved over from the business department. And I know that uh, various of us were a bit concerned that Martin seemed to be treating trade policy as just another job that you blitzed into for a couple of years, did, and then moved on to your next civil service job. And we were 
absolutely clear from the start that that wasn't the right approach, that you needed to build people who saw their careers as being in trade, whether in DIT or whether in other government departments. I think that's a really interesting issue because we know, you know, you need the capability on services, big issue for trade, we need it on agriculture, always a flashpoint. So do we actually think we've cracked creating a trade special? But one of the things I want to give a real shout out to the officials in the DIT for is I think that they've they've suffered but also managed through the fact that for many Brexiters, the independent trade policy was the sort of poster for the opportunities of Brexit. Um, We've had ministers who want to trumpet the new trade deals, but the officials, I think, and John, I think, has to take a lot of credit for this personally, stuck to the task of actually getting all those vital rollover agreements in place, because those were actually the things that were important for business to ensure continuity when, and John made clear, whenever we left the EU finally. Um, I think I've been very impressed by the fact that the analysts under Richard Price have actually produced what looked like really quite robust assessments of the pros and cons of trade deals and haven't sort of succumbed to the need to overhype. We'll see whether that does. One of our recommendations was that government should outsource that to an independent body, as I think the Americans and Australians do. I think we might want to think about whether that's something important uh, long term. So I think the Department for International Trade has actually chalked some things up, but I think it has been had a problematic relationship in Whiteland, it's going to be my last comment, um, because it wasn't given responsibility for the big beast, for the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. Of course, it was never going to do security policy, and you probably couldn't expect a new government on the block to do it. But certainly in its early stages, before, if you like, Frost Johnson took control, you could see tensions across Whitehall, because where the May government was going on trade policy would have clipped the wings of the UK's independent trade policy. John alluded to it with the question of, could you really have a services-only trade policy? And that was implied in May's Common Rule book, I think, to some extent, and some of the sort of UK, EU customs area. And I think there's been a difficulty for the for DIT as a bit of a cuckoo in a Whitehall nest when government's EU policy seemed to be veering towards a closer relationship. And I think coming back, now we're clearer, you know, that we haven't got that sort of relationship with the EU. I think there's really interesting question marks about is DIT really seen as the strategic lead on all of trade policy? And should over time it take over responsibility from David Frost running the relationship with the EU? Be interested to know what John thinks about that. I think that's a no. That's a interesting challenge, Dylan. I think definitely the, this question about where should the sort of most important trading relationship, the responsibility for the most important trading relationship um, of the UK at the moment, where should that responsibility sit? I think is important. Now, I think Sammy wanted to come in, and I also just to sort of say to Laurent, I'm quite interested in your perspective. I know you're involved in training some officials um, at the start, so I'd be quite interested in your view of how how DIT built up that capability. But first, Sam, I'll, I'll come to you. Thank you. Just just a a couple of comments. I'm not going to get into the whether a country needs to have its own independent trade policy and and can successfully run one whilst uh, remaining in a customs union with another territory, uh, because I feel we're past that. Um, But that was an interesting. But that does point to some of the challenges DIT had to face along the way in terms of explicitly setting out what their approach was going to be, because it was a sort of a moving 
target for a while with respect to the relationship with the European Union, and it certainly caused some struggles. I, I was just thinking back when, when being asked to speak on this panel, some of my first interactions with government on trade policy, and this is about 2014, dealing with the TTIP team in biz. And then I was thinking, so, so to Jill's point as to sort of longevity and building up experience, who that I was dealing with then is still around. And and if I'm just going to pull some names out of a hat, David Hennig is one of them, but obviously he's not in government anymore. But you also have people like Edward Barker, who ended up going to DEFRA, but also Chris Barton, who has stayed around in the Department for International Trade, and I think has received an honour for his work um, in the last year or so. But, I, but, but this longevity point is something that's important, because it's certainly something that's frustrated me throughout. And I think there's an inevitability to it, in that there has been a lot of churn. I think that point in government, also with the creation of DEXU, people were moving around a lot. And we all sort of quite, I think it's an IFG line, isn't it? This lingering sort of suspicion of a, a system that encourages moving to get promotions and that it does have consequences for expertise and i think that was a problem but now looking at some of the people who are still around i mean you still amanda brooks has been there the whole time vivian life john has been there the whole time they have i think managed to keep hold of some people throughout this entire process and i think that that has been to the benefit of the department because trade policy is an odd profession in that if i'm thinking of sort of big trade minds globally most of them aren't politicians. Most of them are officials. If we think about it, in the EU, you've got Sabine Veyand, who's been working on trade policy for ages. In the US, you've got Dan Mullaney. He's been working on trade policy for ages. If you're thinking about New Zealand, you're talking about Vangelis Vitalis. It is an odd area where the officials, I think, matter much more than most. I think that's a really interesting point. And actually, I might come to you, John, in a moment to ask about how you think that sort of the DIT has managed to sort of hang on to some of those key people or, or whether that's still something that we're grappling with. Um, Laurent, I wanted to just come to you, as I say, I know that you were, you sort of ran training sessions for officials at the, at the sort of, as the department was getting up and running and you've obviously um, played a role in trying to help build up that capability in government. I mean, how do you think that the department has done in terms of trying to sort of build up the, the capacity and capability to sort of deliver on this independent trade policy? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think the government did well on that. Um, so what happened uh, uh, was that different, the main government training uh, was run via the FCO, as it then was, um, uh, under the umbrella of uh, an entity called the Diplomatic Academy, uh, and Lisa Mackey was uh, responsible for that. And they uh, set up um, a fairly significant contract um, with Linklater's, where I was before Freshfields. And, and we did training there for, uh, well, probably three or four years and trained, I think, in excess of 500 uh, government officials. But that wasn't the only training program going. That was at the expert level. There were different levels of training. We also trained uh, chief negotiators uh, and chapter leads, which is the, the next level down for FTAs. And it was all very geared to FTA uh, negotiators. But there was also other trading, and I also did some of that um, in, in other uh, capacities. So the, the DIT um, ran some other training, but other departments also did this. So my impressions of all of this uh, as follows. I think um, the idea of doing this was, uh, was right. I think the way that it was done was also right. There was um, 
uh, a good use of academics. I mean, at Linklater, there are also lawyers involved in this that were effectively trained up by me. Um, uh, but uh, essentially, the training was done by academics, but not just academics. Also, um, we brought in a lot of expertise, uh, people who had um, so let's say the basic structure, the syllabus, I mean, that's an academic job, right? Um, you can't just go ad hoc. There was a time, there was one phase of this which didn't involve us where it was um, left uh, uh, to people who weren't academics uh, and apparently it was all a bit of a, um, uh, a bit of a randomness. So they came back to academia to uh, establish a nice structured syllabus. And, and it's not just me, again, it's my other colleagues. Um, I think, you know, you, you do need expertise uh, when it comes to designing training, just like with anything else. So we brought in people um, who knew uh, uh, how to negotiate, for instance, um, from around the traps, you know, ex-commission negotiators, people from different countries, people from Geneva, um, if there were particular subject areas, uh, even, you know, peripheral to trade or, you know, more from a domestic point of view, we brought in people uh, to talk there. So it was a fairly wide ranging remit. But the key, um, which uh, which I did both at Linklater's, but also uh, in other capacities and other people did the same sort of thing, was focused on negotiations. That was essentially uh, the idea, getting people trained up. Now, I think that um, the people uh, who did the program were probably at the right level. I mean, people were very young, right? I mean, it was often like an LLM class, you know, and but they were bright, bright LLM type students, except that they weren't lawyers. And that's one of my first major points is that the people that we were teaching were not the lawyers. Now, I understand that the lawyers had other amounts of training, but I couldn't help gaining the impression that the lawyers were seen a little bit as um, maybe let me just say this in an exaggerated way for effect and John can correct me I'll give him uh, I'll just I'll just set this up for him to boot off uh, off field um, I had the impression that lawyers were treated a little bit like lawyers working for a broadcasting company where you'd sort of do your thing and then you'd run it by the lawyers like you'd run a sort of you know is this going to pass now I don't know if that is still the case but that's sort of the way um, I saw it, given the people who were sent to us, which only included a couple of lawyers by mistake. And that's a bit of an odd thing, particularly, for instance, when what you're spending four days intensively talking about is how to design uh, a proper dispute settlement system. I mean, every country would send the lawyers off to do that, right? So that to me was like when I thought, well, hang on a sec. I mean, are the lawyers doing this alongside the policy people that I'm talking to? And if so, why isn't that better integrated? So I found that... Um, Curious, but you know, I wouldn't want to make too much of that because I'm sure that it is properly integrated back home. I just thought, you know, who is doing the training? Because not me, uh, of of the lawyers. And and another aspect of that is uh, two two more things, and I'll stop. One is um, there were these overlapping training sessions. Um, they weren't necessarily 100% coordinated, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You have different people doing things, and there are contractual and procurement aspects to that. Um, but that's just one point. It wasn't always 100% joined up. But another was that we're talking about DIT, um, but DIT was actually only one of our customers. Uh, we had, um, in fact, I wouldn't even say it was the bulk of the customers. We had a huge number of departments who were participating in this training program. And from that point of view, the FCO running it was a good idea. So we had, you know, depending on the topic, uh, Treasury, Bays, obviously, DEFRA, Transport, and, and, you know, we ran standalones as well. DCMS was a big one. And also that makes sense because these departments are heavily involved in the negotiation of the agreements uh, as well. So that's uh, probably enough 
from me for the time being. I think overall, uh, I thought the, the 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 quality of the people that came to us was good. Um, uh, hopefully, they, they learned something. I think that I think that was all well done on the whole. But I do also worry about churn because a lot of the people that uh, you know passed through. Uh, you know, and the government invested heavily in this. Well, where are they now? It's probably not as bad as you might think because a lot of people went off to cognate departments. So, you know, people who might have been DIT went off to DCMS, maybe in cabinet office or whatever. It is a bit of a, you know, uh, lots of revolving doors and that's within government. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So it's not like the investment is lost, but then there are people who have disappeared and, um, and well, you have to wonder, you know, if you are training people, you know, what for? No, that's re it's really, really helpful. And I will also just say that actually Martin Donnelly has uh, has sort of sent in and, and said he's agreed with Jill on his um, on her tribute to John's skillful handling of trade policy. So I mean, he's clearly listening in. Um, Sam, you, I think you were you might want to come in to challenge uh, Laurent's point about lawyers and trade policy. And then actually, I was going to come back to John, and I'd be interested in John's reflections on on um, on what we've just discussed, we've discussed so far. <laughs> this was mainly me referring to a long-running dispute between me and Laurent on the importance of trade lawyers when it comes to trade policy. I, I, I'm slightly of the mind that you need them, but you shouldn't involve them too much. Uh, so just, 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 just when needed to make sure you're not going to do anything particularly egregious, uh, but otherwise they can they can confuse matters quite quickly. But, but, but I think Laurent will definitely disagree with me in that. Just, just because I know you're moving back to to, to, to John, I think just if I'm going to be slightly critical of something. It's just to build on Laurent's point that for a while, when dealing with government and trade policy, and I think this was to do with DIT being new, it was very difficult to know who you should actually be speaking to, both in terms of departments. I mean, over the course of the six-month period, I got introduced to the trade team of nearly every government department, and I started to think, well, who's in charge? And then I just remember a conversation I had with DEFRA in their sort of early days when I said, so, so what's your role in relation to DIT? And, you know, and the sort of official line was, well, we're there to assist on agriculture policy, but the unofficial line is we're there to stop them from doing stupid things. As we've seen over the last maybe six months or so. I mean, this was many years ago now. You know, this, this relationship's evolved and now DEFRA doesn't get a hearing when it comes to trade deals with Australia and others. But, but, but you know, so, so, so things evolved there, but it has been confusing. And I think the one problem they did have for a while that I think they have dealt with is external messaging. Because that, that was sort of more jovial and it was maybe just a function, what I last said, maybe just a function of the fact that the DIT was new. But externally, the big problem that I think they had for a while was if you talk to diplomats representing other countries, they would say, I'm getting different messages as to what the UK's priorities on trade are from the FCO, from DEXU and from the Department for International Trade. And if I get to speak to Cabinet Office from Cabinet Office. So, so who is leading on this. And where I think we really have seen the changes, it's much clearer now, I think, and this might just be a function of government priorities and them being less confused at the political level, where some of that is, although, of course, you still have the EU uh, where Frost sits and DIT issue. No, I think that's that's a good point. And actually, it's something that I definitely want to get into um, is the sort of, Laurent, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you explain why lawyers are important in one moment. I'm going to give uh, give John a, a right reply now to, to a sort of quite a few questions, I think, and challenges that have been lobbed his way. I think one of, the, I mean, one of the questions actually that Sam did just raise, which I think would be interesting to get your perspective on, is the relationship between um, sort of DIT um, and, and other departments in government and how you navigate that. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Maddie, and thanks for the comments. Um, I mean, I'll pick up a few points. Uh, first, by the way, DEFRA do get a look in on trade policy. 
for all my DEFRA colleagues. Um, I'll come back to working across government. I think on the point about, you know, the really serious point about um, uh, long-term expertise, and as you said, we've invested in a lot of people. Um, so that has been a priority for us. Um, I'm not going to detail uh, the individual ways in which we have always persuaded people to stay with us. But actually, you know, one of the things I'm most proud about, um, and uh, I think Sam mentioned Amanda um, uh, and Chris Barton and Oliver Griffiths as well. I mean, a lot of the people in Vivian who joined as a senior leadership team are all still there. And for a department after five years, that is pretty good. And Crawford, who arrived you know, a year later as well. So I think that, you know, we don't want groupthink, obviously. Um, but um, as everyone knows, the, 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 it is a complaint by external um, stakeholders and businesses that there's a, a quickly revolving um, door and that, that is not good. Uh, and yeah, and that has has applied down the line of obviously not everyone has stayed, but there are a lot of people who came in uh, early on who are still there. And, you know, I think that is about people enjoying the role. I mean, it's quite challenging sometimes. Um, but we do recognize that not everyone, you know, people are not going to stay in the same job for 10 years, probably. Um, I know the UK system is a bit different from continental systems, but even so. Um, and so the trade profession is absolutely about giving people opportunities to move to other departments, uh, to do jobs. So one of the things we're keen on is people who've done domestic economic policy, because that interaction is absolutely crucial. So there, I think there is a sufficient range of roles that we would be encouraging people to take um, and then to come back into trade um, that um, we should be able to do this. But, it, you know, it is still relatively early days. So let's see. On a couple of other points, um, I won't get into an argument about lawyers between Sam and Laurent, but... Um, I would say that both on the analytical side and the legal side, you know, we are incredibly integrated. It is a multidisciplinary team. Um, actually, I remember going on a course, it probably wasn't one of yours, Laurent, with lawyers. So uh, there are some that we've done together. Um, and, you know, I think that's uh, that's essential. I mean, we've had to bring in, we've also got contracts to assist us on the legal side with expertise um, and for capacity reasons as well. So, you know, we have been quite, I think, imaginative in how we've deployed external resource. On um, on the um, point about uh, the EU, um, I mean, I realistically, you know, it would have dwarfed anything that we were doing uh, on the rest of trade policy I mean, these are political decisions. It's great to talk about machinery of government uh, uh, ad nauseam. I gather we're going to hear possibly about whether we should be part of the Foreign Office. Um, but, um, I mean, we, we worked closely with them throughout the last, well, through with Dexy also, but also with David Frost's team. Um, Chris Barton actually went to that team and led the goods negotiations for uh, with the EU. So, you know, it's not like we have uh, uh, complete silos here. 
Um, I don't think it's going to change uh, in the immediate future. Um, so we we will continue to work with um, uh, with uh, David Frost and and the people are now implementing the EU agreement. Um, but as someone commented, you know we do have a lot more clarity now about what the relationship with the EU is and. I think that has made our job a bit easier than it was five years ago. Thanks, John. And before, I think I think Jill might have wanted to come in, but um, and as I said, I did promise Lauren you'd, you'd have a moment to defend lawyers and trade um, trade negotiations. But actually, one thing I did want to come back to you on, John, and you mentioned it in your opening remarks. But actually, you know, DIT is not just about trade negotiations. There are also other elements of what it what it does. And I wonder, from your your sort of perspective, how you sort of went about trying to integrate that into sort of having a sort of coherent department that's got a sort of clear objective. Given that you know, it's not, as I say, we sort of focus a lot on deals. I think that's partly because of the sort of way the government focuses on trade. But I'd be quite interested in your reflections on the sort of other side of, again, building capability and ensuring we're delivering sort of the broader objectives of, of our sort of trade policy more generally. Yeah, I mean, I think um, compared with most departments, it is still a very focused um, department and the, the objectives of the department are not that difficult to articulate uh, as a whole. Um uh, but, um, you know, we have gradually, uh, over time, uh, integrated more and more of the department. So our stakeholder management, for instance, needs to cut across all the different activities that we're doing. Um, and, um, you know, we, we've, we've changed the way that we do that internally. That's not very interesting necessarily to other people. But we've tried to create more functions that operate for the whole department, not just for a bit of the department. Bearing in mind, we you know came together from different uh, previous organisations. And I mentioned the overseas network where, I mean, one of the big changes has been a shift in uh, focus to market access work, whereas Previously, the overseas network was pretty much entirely um, export promotion and inward investment promotion. Um, so that that requires, you know, some challenging um, different skills uh, or retraining of people. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the things that we, we've done to try and integrate uh, and make the most of what is now a policy and delivery department. That's, that's really interesting. Um, before I come to you, Jill, I will let um, Laurent de- defend lawyers in in, um, in trade policy for a moment because I say I have promised you a right of reply to Sam. Thanks. Well, look, I don't think lawyers should be involved in trade policy, uh, other than, of course, designing dispute settlement arrangements. Um, but that's not really trade policy. So don't get me wrong. What I mean is that um, we're dealing with uh, international relations and the language of international relations is law. Um, ultimately, all of this, whether you're talking uh, about um, FTAs, WTO negotiations, or even, frankly, uh, unilateral global tariffs, um, needs to be done either through the medium of legal text or with a very, very close eye to legal text to enable you to know what it is that you can do. So it's not that the driving force should be legal, obviously not, um, but the language is legal. And therefore, um, it's all very well to have your ideas, but if you can't express them in the right way, which is legal, and your counterparts are thinking 
in those terms. And we know about this from EU-UK negotiations. I mean, the, the common refrain was, well, the EU come to us with procedure. It's always procedure, right? They defeat us with procedure. That sounds like law to me. Um, and it's a different mentality. The UK doesn't really do that, except, of course, um, in the Foreign Office. And, uh, and one of the things that I would uh, also put on the table is whether or not the, uh, there should be something like a chief legal advisor in DIT with the same standing. Uh, and I'm not suggesting by any means that you don't have people like this, but just in terms of institutional, uh, institutional matter, whether there should be someone like that in, uh, as you have in the Foreign Office, where the chief legal advisor is a very significant personage. And why not have someone like that in trade? Because after all, you are dealing with international treaties almost all the time at the end of the day. I know. I think that's, that's a, a, a sort of, I think, a good good report to Sam. I think that is an interesting um, question that maybe John John can think about. Um, Jill, you wanted to come in, I think. I don't know if this was about um, working across other departments, but um, I think you wanted to come in. I mean, I think there's an interesting issue about working across other departments. And certainly, I think in the early days, one of the comments we used to hear from lots of other Whitehall departments was that DIT was quite difficult to deal with because the perception was they drunk the brexit Kool-Aid in a way that perhaps others hadn't at that stage. But that was a time when, when departments were very much reflecting the very split views of their sections of state. And as John said, that time has now gone. But I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, the big new kid on the block is obviously the ability to conclude trade deals in our own right. That is the bit you get extra. But we know that through all our time in the EU, uh, Germany was still exporting loads to countries that we weren't exporting nearly as much to, despite the fact that uh, trade policy was run by um, by uh, the EU. Uh, so it wasn't the deal that was important. It was actually what's in your manufacturing base, uh, what's in your you know, business interest, and what's the quality of your trade promotion. And I was really interested. A couple of years ago, we had an event where we had some business representatives, and they gave a sort of unsolicited testimonial that they thought DIT was actually doing a much better job now at the trade promotion side of the work, which you could say, you know, doesn't get nearly as much attention. But I think it's a really interesting question, maybe back for John and the others, the extent to which DIT feels it's now sort of, you know, able to focus on that a lot. We've had an announcement about apples to India, which seems to be actually just sort of, you know, generally focusing a bit on market access, nothing to do with the explicit big comprehensive trade deal. Are they able to do that? Do they Have they got senior enough people out in their network? Um, stories I get back from posts is that the Germans have really senior people in countries who can uh, uh, conclude deals or, you know, talk to government ministers. We have much more junior people, partly because we uh, are a bit cheap uh, out in countries. Do we actually, have we actually sort of cracked the sort of full follow through from concluding deals to ensuring proper utilisation to making sure our deals reflect business asks? We might hear a bit more about that this afternoon into actually making sure that our businesses know enough about how to use all those trade deals. So you have a real sort of pull through from the negotiating into the implementation because there's no good, good at concluding nice shiny deals if no British business actually bothers to take advantage of the new advantages when we know the other side will be. So I think there's sort of a whole bunch of really interesting things. And the other question, I noticed it's coming up a bit in the chat, Maddie, 
is when we were looking at this in the initial days, people were quite sceptical about the possibility for doing a lot in trade negotiations for services, in particular financial services. They thought the real focus had to be on regulatory cooperation rather than what you could do in a trade deal per se. That it wasn't a particularly useful vehicle. And I'm really interested whether John thinks DIT with the Treasury uh, have sort of totally cracked how you actually improve financial services. It's obviously going to be quite important as we've effectively given up on equivalents in the EU. What I might do, John, I, if I if I won't come to you straight away, I think I'll sort of gather some thoughts from from the others and then and then come back to you. Um, Sam, I think you wanted to come in come in on that. Well, well, well just on, on on Jill's final point on what government is doing to further sort of the UK's aggressive interest in financial services and unlocking market access elsewhere. The, the problem DIT have here is that a trade agreement isn't necessarily the framework in which that can happen. So if you think about, say, UK-Japan, uh, which is you know a newish agreement, it's had new elements added into it. There were some additional elements added on financial services, but they were to do with not requiring, uh, committing not to require companies to keep their financial services related data in data centers within Japan's territory. Something Japan doesn't make companies do anyway, but it's useful because it means that they won't necessarily change that rule in future. But in terms of deep market access, anything that requires a country to change its regulations, right, and that's the hard bit. Trade agreements can set up structures that that produce that, but 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 struggle to go much further. But that, that's not to say that government isn't doing interesting work here. I think the most interesting bit of work on financial services is coming out of Treasury at the moment and the mutual recognition discussions with Switzerland, whereas they have actually created a dialogue with the ambition to actually break down some of these regulatory barriers, maybe put what would normally be dealt with on equivalence on a more secure footing, and that could potentially provide a framework for future discussions uh, elsewhere. That's interesting. Um, Laurent, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on, on sort of what the government is doing on, on these aspects. Well, uh, I mean, I just want to say something. I, I can't comment on uh, the government's uh, actual approach right now, but just in terms of the vehicle through which one can do this. I mean, the, the, Sam's right in terms of what happens, but I would disagree with him in terms of that being a necessity. Um, trade agreements can cope with market access in financial services quite happily as a matter of uh, design. The reason that they don't terribly much and that you end up with um, uh, mutual recognition arrangements between regulators, and you see the same thing with professional qualifications, is simply that the regulators don't trust the government. The regulators <laughs> are often um, uh, you know, uh, self-regulating bodies. I mean, the law society, uh, you know, and the MOJ, of course, they're, they're best friends and so on, but the Law Society is going to want to control um, regulatory issues when it comes to, you know, lawyers and the architects the same and, and everybody else is the same, right? So it's a problem of internal uh, competence. It's, it's, and it's just um, uh, how we are at the moment. But let's not forget that the whole concept of mutual recognition is embedded in primary EU law uh, was given proper effect by the European Commission on that basis and by the European Court of Justice uh, in what is effectively a constitutional document. In all other countries uh, with federal systems, you see mutual recognition coming straight out of the constitution. So there's no um, necessity for this to be treated as soft. It can be hard. The reason it is soft is, is simply a matter of uh, internal structures of governance. 
I think that's really, really interesting. Um, John, I wonder if you have any thoughts on it, on any of that. And I think actually your point at the end uh, around about the sort of regulator side of it and how you manage that is quite, quite interesting. And, and, and sort of how, I guess, um, John, you sort of perceive that challenge and how you, you try and navigate that. Yeah, thanks. I just also want to pick up Jill's earlier points about um, the link between export promotion and trade agreements, uh, because that is something which um, is, is very much a priority for the department at the moment, particularly as we go into what are new agreements, um, but not only those. So on Japan, for instance, we did follow up that um, agreement with a uh, a large virtual trade mission sort of straight away and some of the um if you if you what look at the advertising and the marketing coming out of dit and the campaigns on on uh, food and drink for instance uh they tend to refer to places like canada and japan and and so i think that linkage um is becoming embedded and, and um, the export teams uh very much have been given the steer not only to focus, obviously, on the new FTAs, but the utilisation point is is important. Uh, they are no good if people aren't taking advantage of them. Um, on, um, I mean, you talked about financial services in particular. I mean, just a reminder that services, which I know you know, you talked about um, professional qualifications, is broader than financial services. So, I mean, on mobility with um, Australia, uh, we did achieve um, uh, some really good outcomes. Um, and that will be, you know, services, uh, COVID permitting, generally <laughs> require people to travel around the place. Um, so that's important for us. Um, but coming back to regulators, yeah, I remember um, visiting Canada uh, early on and um, to look at uh, how they had trade agreements with the EU and the US, for instance. And uh, the Canadian, the EU-Canada uh, CETA just been agreed. And so I asked them about the regulatory annexes because um, in pr principle there was a whole process of mutual recognition that was envisaged. And they said, oh, well, yes, we've got these annexes, but, um, you know, the respective bodies haven't started talking to one another yet. Um, so it can be a really long process. Um, and, um, I mean, I think there's, you know, a variety of reasons why it's challenging. It, it, it's probably not just the structures, although clearly uh, there is regulatory independence, which is important. Um, but it's also that these things touch on, um, you know, governments' um, views of how they want to run their economy. And so um, they are not straightforward. Um, so I agree that a lot of this will be done uh, through regulatory dialogue. I think FTAs, um, certainly traditionally, um, have maybe given that more impetus. They provided a political framework for it. They've encouraged it. I mean, that's what CETA was doing. Um, We'll have to see how far we can get. Uh, you know, we got some, again, really, you talked about the financial services uh, with Switzerland. I mean, we did a really good uh, agreement with Switzerland on, on mobility um, as well, um, which was, um, and on digital services, I mean, your point about Japan. Yeah, so it, it is um, 
going to be easier for companies and less costly for companies if they do not have to um, uh, have servers operate, you know, all their data on servers in some other country. So all these things, you know, they're, they're not sort of one silver bullet, um, but they add up. Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, there's, I've seen someone um, in the chat has suggested, you know, can can our sort of independent regulators be a sort of potential conduit for soft power? And I think that's a really interesting question as well. Um, Sam, I did want to come to you. Um, I realize the sort of time is ticking on. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, your time on the Strategic Trade Advisory Group. Um, and this was sort of set up in 2019 to sort of be a bit of an opportunity for external stakeholders to sort of engage with, um, with DIT at a sort of more strategic level. Um, I wondered, you know, do you think, I know you're not on it anymore, but do you feel like that was a useful forum? And, and you know, can it be used in a better way? I mean, what, what's your view, I guess, of how DIT has actually engaged with external stakeholders um, as sort of over the last few years? Yeah, so, so I think I was on the first official iteration of the Strategic Trade Advisory Group. There was sort of a slight, there was this different version of it that wasn't quite, thought, it wasn't quite sure what the sort of basis for it was before that. And, but that also meant that I was, there whilst they were working it out i think it's fair to say insofar as trying to work out exactly what its purpose was and at the same time trying to create all of these expert trade advisory groups we then had the minister chairing it changed after the first meeting so we then had to rerun the first meeting you know doing the whole what's this about introduce yourself so it was a bit of a tough process and my, my sort of takeaway from it is that i now think the government has the right structures and I think the Strategic Trade Advisory Group is a potentially an important part of that. I think how they set up the expert trade advisory groups is good. The difficulty we had whilst I was on it, and maybe this isn't, is why I'm not on it anymore, but um, is, is that there was a slight trust deficit in both directions in that in that the government felt, it felt like they were unsure about sharing candidly with people in the room. And some of the people in the room I actually was very trusting. I'm not sure why I said that, but, but but some people in the room maybe had some slight distrust of the government at the time, and it meant that you were often just talking about things that were already in the public domain rather than really looking into the future, discussing what you want to do. You know, I, I was finding out more by talking to foreign governments. You know, it was one of those things where. You know, I always knew sort of what they were alluding to because someone else had already told me exactly what was going to happen the week after when it, with one of the rollovers. But, uh, yeah, so structure's right. I think we spent far too much time arguing about NDAs. I hope that arguing about NDAs is over and that people have just agreed to sign them. Uh, I, I, I suspect that's not the case in every expert trade advisory group where I imagine that argument's still going on. Good structure, very reliant on trust. When I was there, the trust wasn't quite there, I think, between government and stakeholders. But hopefully, uh, since I've left, but not because I've left, that's improved. I think that's really interesting. And, and one of the, the questions, I mean, sort of, it's not, it's not quite the same, but related to that is we've got a question about um, sort of engagement between DIT and um, the devolved administrations, where, again, trust, I think, is one of the big issues. Um, Jill, I, just, I was going to just come Sorry. to you. Yes, sorry. So, sorry, one, just, just one final addition before I shut up. One thing I would say is because I was involved with this recently and, and John mentioned it earlier was there was a G7 trade track that did a lot of stakeholder engagement. And so that was, that was my most recent formal interaction with DIT and I thought that was really good. So, 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 so my most recent experience of it, and I'm not saying the stag was bad, I just think it was nascent, it was early on and it was a learning experience, uh, has been much more positive. 
No, I think that's, I think that's that's sort of positive to hear, and I think Laurent, it looks like you're also agreeing with with Sam on, on some of that as well. Um, but yeah, so I just because we have been asked, um, as I said, by Charles a bit more about about the sort of involvement between DIT and the default administrations on trade policy. I mean, I'm just interested, Jill, on your reflections on sort of maybe some of the challenges of actually working with the default administrations, but also um, whether you know there is more that could be done to try and involve them. And John, I will come to you on that um, after after Jill. I might hand it straight on to John because I'm very intrigued to know what he says. I mean, clearly, if you talk to people in the devolved administrations, uh, they don't think that they are being given a sort of decent crack of the whip to input into trade policy. But you might almost say from outside, they would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, We've seen things like the Internal Market Act, which clearly... uh, yeah, allows the UK to give effect to whatever it negotiates externally, um, subject, of course, to the Northern Ireland Protocol, but allows, you know, within Great Britain for the UK to make some necessary changes and then to ensure that goods are recognised throughout uh, throughout the GB market, uh, whatever it needs to do. Um, I think it's just another symptom of the generally stressed relationship between the UK and the devolved governments that we've seen across a whole range of issues. And I think the really interesting question is, as we move forward and things, you know, perhaps settle down, maybe not for a few years, will the UK actually find a way where it realises that actually there are some quite interesting issues and the devolves do have lots to say, particularly if agriculture features largely in things where the structure of agriculture, things like fishing, are quite different from Scotland, Wales' perspective to the English perspective, which the UK government also has to represent. Uh, that's no, that's that's interesting. I think I think you're right about some of the key areas being um, quite important to get um, to get involved involvement in. Um, John, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, and on on stakeholders more generally, um, and you know, interesting. Uh, to hear Sam's comments, uh, I think he's right that we were um, sort of trying to get things going and and finding our feet. Um, and um, we have now got a more mature structure, but um, I'm sure it's not perfect. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time talking to members of the trade advisory groups about some of the agreements. Um, and um, as we get into... Um, you know, new negotiations with new policy, they are obviously very keen to get into the detail. And so finding a way which does involve uh, confidentiality arrangements to allow people to do that, I think, is important. Uh, On the um, DAs, um, I mean, Jill, I I agree that, you know, there's a political um, sort of backdrop uh, or indeed foreground to this. Um, So we, you know, we have set up mechanisms. Uh, We've thought quite a lot about, um, you know, what the the powers are. Because trade policy, yes, it's it's a reserve power, but a lot of the implementing legislation is with the devolves. So basically, we want to try and work with them. um, And there's been a lot of engagement. but we we are part of a, a wider picture, as you say. Um, so, I mean, uh, it, it will continue to need quite a lot of work, I think. 
Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair. But I, I mean, I think from conversations that I've had, I definitely think that the sort of engagement from DIT has been sort of more positive than maybe the engagement from Cabinet Office on the UK EU negotiations. But I think that was starting from quite a low bar. Um, so uh, I realize we're really running out of time, and there's still quite a few more questions I wanted to fire at you. But one of the things that we haven't again talked about, and I'm thinking again about the sort of relationships and perception of DIT externally, is how DIT has performed with some of the international organisations and how it's sort of built um, relationships and built a reputation internationally and Laurent I was quite interested in your view on that sort of thinking about the World Trade Organization but also I mean John's mentioned the fact that a third of staff is overseas and again we talked a little bit about maybe seniority could be more senior people abroad might be helpful if you're looking at something like how Germany behaves but I'd be interested Laurent on, on your view of that. Well, yes, I think that the well, the WTO dimension, um, I can't say much about the missions, but uh, just in terms of Geneva, uh, I think they are really the slightly less sung heroes of this whole business because, you know, the sexy stuff is always FTAs because they're new and they're shiny and ministers love signing treaties, um, uh, you know, of, it's great photo ops and it sounds, it looks like something is moving forward. It's a little bit harder to get quite the same excitement, even though I know John uh, has done his best by a treaty to, uh, to, you know, applaud when uh, the UK signs up to the government procurement agreement and so on. And, you know, that's all correct. But I'd just like to, you know, give a shout out to the people in Geneva and, of course, support back in London as well, because it, it doesn't quite grab the headlines as a new deal, a new post-Brexit policy, but it's absolutely fundamental. And I think um, the, uh, uh, the reputation of the UK officials in Geneva is very high. And what I'm hearing more recently also is that, uh, and this is one of the, uh, Brexit dividends, I think, is that being outside of the U of the EU, the UK is able to um, play something of uh, a more important role, a bridging role, uh, a convening role, and so let's face it, it's still a big country, um, and you know it counts. And I think that uh, that has been done uh, very successfully, just maybe not quite so public. I mean, I know um, the people a little bit out of date now. The people who were in Geneva and, and you know very very high quality, and I think they've done a really great. Uh, job and the same with the people who've been uh, supporting them in London. So that that is a big success, I think. That's, uh, that's that's sort of positive, positive to hear. I know we've only got a couple more minutes left, but John already alluded to the fact that I was going to ask a question about, you know, does it make sense for for trade to, to be in a separate department? Should we be thinking about um, adding trade to the sort of long list of responsibilities at the FCDO, um, given it's sort of, you know, it's clearly a part of the UK's uh, foreign policy? Jill, I was going to ask you whether you have any sort of immediate reflections um, on that as a bit of a challenge, and then I will definitely give John the last word before we wrap up. Well, we just published an interview with the former permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, Simon uh, McDonald, who made it very clear that he had big eyes when he was there looking at trade and probably would have preferred to take over trade first before uh, merging with the Department for International Development. I think the real danger in a country like the UK is that it would sort of diminish the sort of you know, status of the trade bit if it was subsumed in the FCO's wider agenda. And that may be contrast with countries like Australia and New Zealand, where we look at that model, where they, uh, where trade is an important part of their foreign policy. I'm not sure it would ever be quite so important for the UK. So I would contrast between the really importance of a joined up approach in country, the one HMG approach, which I think makes a bunch of sense and having trade really very high up uh, on the agenda of the ambassadors and high commissioners out there with a mock change back home. And actually, I think the more important thing is to build a real sense 
that this is an important function. It's a department people want to be part of. And it's not just another thing you do before you flip over to become political counsellor somewhere or do that, which I think is the danger if it's part of the FCO. Interesting. And I think that's a, that's a good uh, defence of the Department for International Trade. So as, as promised in the last minute or so um, over time, I will, I will come to you, John. And if we imagine the Department of International Trade will still be there in, in five years time. And what, what is sort of your hope you hoping? What are you hoping it to achieve in the next five years? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, I mean, I just wanted to say also um, Jill's point about one HMG overseas as part of the answer. I mean, we do have senior people, uh, but we shouldn't just look at the IT people in isolation overseas. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, uh, I'm tempted to say the sky's the limit. I mean, we have been running at uh, 100 miles an hour. Uh, that's how it feels anyway, for those of us inside the department. Um, you can't uh, probably do that forever. And so uh, we will, um, uh, we still have a really ambitious program of uh, trade policy and negotiations, but um, we also have to contribute to other government uh, priorities. So the levelling up, um, going back to exports and investment, um, we, we, we need to be as well known for what we've achieved there as we are for what we're achieving on our trade policy and our trade negotiations. So that would be my aspiration in a, in a nutshell. Great, thanks. I'm just going to apologise also to the audience that there's suddenly drilling has started outside my flat. But um, I just want to say thank you very, very much to a lively discussion from the panel. I think it's been um, really, really interesting for me. Um, and so thank you all for taking part and thank you everyone for listening. I will plug the sort of two further events that we have later today. So um, I'll be chairing a discussion at two on parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals. So sort of looking at the other side of the coin, so to speak, and then join us for the final panel at 4pm where we will be discussing in detail the UK's trade strategy. Um, so hopefully um, we will see you then. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.